0: Evidence and answers. The Philippian church was much like the church of today. We need to be reminded of what to put into our minds. Philippians 4 talks about thinking on the good things of God. What do you dwell on or allow yourself to think on? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, we will hear our host, Pat Zukran, as he continues on with a series going through the book of Philippians. Today, he is in chapter 4. If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's Pat with part 1. Philippians chapter 4. As we begin, then, let's pray
1: together. Thank you, Lord, for the great principles that we can learn today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Philippians chapter 4, you know, we are now in the season of peace, the season of joy, but lasting peace and joy are what we all long for, but few ever find in this life. We seek it in many ways, in relationships, in work, in money, in pleasures, but lasting joy and peace cannot be found in the things of this world. And throughout the book of Philippians, Paul unlocks for us the principles that bring everlasting joy and peace for every man and woman. Paul, despite being in prison now, perhaps facing the final moments of his life, writes from a heart of surprisingly joy and exerts each one of us to discover the joy that is found in Christ. You see, what we learn from Philippians is joy is not a feeling. Joy does not depend on our circumstances. As believers in Christ, we can be in some of the most difficult situations and yet still have the joy of the Lord within us. It's a hallmark of a believer in Christ. And in his final chapter here in chapter 4, Paul gives us some final words of exhortation to the Philippians. And in these five verses we're going to study today, Paul gives five exhortations. Paul warns the Philippians on the things that can rob a believer in Christ of that everlasting joy and peace and principles that help maintain that everlasting joy in our lives. Now, the first exhortation comes in verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. It's in the present imperative form. That means it's a command. It's not an option for believers rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Remember now, Paul was in prison at this time, wrongly accused, sentence built on false charges. This guy is sitting in house arrest now. And instead of being depressed, instead of feeling sorry for himself, instead of feeling robbed, instead he exudes with joy. That's why Philippians is called the epistle of joy. Even though it's one of the prison epistles, Joy is mentioned over a dozen times in this letter, because joy does not depend on our circumstances or our situation. It's an attitude. It's a mindset that comes from knowing no matter how bad things may seem, God is in control, working all things in my life, sometimes behind the scenes in ways I do not see or understand. No matter how difficult the situation may be, God is at work to bring about his purpose in our lives. And God is a God of love, he's a God of wisdom, a God of righteousness. All that he does is for his glory, for his honor, and always for our good. And Paul says, again, I say rejoice, emphasizing, okay, no matter what the situation may be, joy can be a reality, an experience for every believer in Christ. Joy was to be the hallmark of individuals and churches who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. People search to attain lasting joy in relationships, in possessions, in status, in money, whatever it may be. However, lasting joy can only be built upon a relationship and a hope that is true and everlasting, one that will never come to an end, one that can never be taken away. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord, because that lasting, ever-never-ending joy and peace can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most powerful witnesses of the reality of Jesus Christ in the life of a church and in the life of every believer you know when my father passed away a few years ago there was a great debate in our house as to what kind of funeral we we're gonna have now the majority the vast majority wanted a Buddhist funeral because you know they said, hey we're Zechariah we're Buddhists okay we've all grown up Buddhist. every funeral has been Buddhist and I said well I said dad died a Christian man All right, three days before he accepted Christ. So it's got to be a Christian funeral. So we're going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, my mother said, Okay, what would a Buddhist funeral look like? I said, Well, you know what it looks like. I said, Priest comes in, he chants from the sutras. All right, then he gives a message about how the basic fundamentals of Buddhism this world is an illusion, it's not real. Your individuality is not real. This world is an illusion, so we need to detach from everything in this world. And the person who has died, hopefully, has gone to nirvana, which means nothingness, blowing out of existence, no longer existing, no personhood, no individuality. That's the goal of Buddhism, nothingness, nirvana. That's what it means, right? Because to exist in a conscious state means to experience pain and suffering, so the goal of Buddhism is complete extinction. That's your message, okay? And then they'll chant from the Lotus Sutra, most of which is Indian or Chinese, which we won't understand, and that will be your Buddhist funeral. And my mother said, kind of depressing. I said, well, we've been to the hundreds of them. You know, she goes, yeah. Well, would a Christian funeral be different? I said, well, yeah, oh, yeah. She goes, what would a Christian funeral be like? Well, I said... Well, Philippians chapter four says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. I said, as in a Christian funeral, we mourn the passing of the loved one, but we also celebrate their life and the time we had with them. And we celebrate the joy, the sure hope we have in Jesus Christ that one day we are going to have a reunion again. We're going to be eternally with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in heaven in a state more real than even what we have here. And that's a sure hope that we have because Jesus Christ was a real historical person who lived, died, and conquered sin and death through his resurrection. And that eternal hope that we shall meet again for sure is something we celebrate. And she thought about it and she said, that sounds a lot more joyful because I'd rather have that kind of funeral I said yes <laughs> so uh, I ended up being a Christian funeral and throughout the funeral the one who presided pastor Fujinami from Kalihi Union was able to do it in English and Japanese able to sing in English and Japanese my mother ended up attending his Bible study joy is the hallmark of believers in Christ even in very difficult times Joy can be something that we experience. Well, life application is this. This is an acrostic I was given many years ago when I first came to Christ. And it's stuck with me ever since. It's real simple. You know how much I hate cliches, but this one really is meaningful to me. Joy. The definition of joy, I was taught, is Jesus first. As we studied last week, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When you have the right focus in life, that is where the process of developing the right perspective of life and developing that everlasting joy begins. Joy is Jesus first, all others second, and why yourself last. Joy. That's a great definition of joy. When the joy is gone in your life, take a look at these three. Time to refocus. Have one of them gone out of order. Hey, maybe yourself has come first. That's often the case. So Paul's first exhortation is the exhortation to praise, to rejoice in the Lord. Second, his exhortation is patience towards others. He says here, let your forbearing spirit be known to all, for the Lord is near. Or some of your translations may read, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Or some of your translations may read, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Greek word there for reasonableness, epikase, means gentleness, graciousness, patience, forbearance, kindness. Hey, it's the character of Christ. It's to be the character of every leader. And it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. This kind of person demonstrates patience with others and is not quick to get angry and fly off the handle of, When dealing with others, a person with this kind of character quality does not insist on always having their own way or demand that he or she is always right. And everyone else is always wrong. They are patient, willing to listen to others and understand without losing their head. And Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Christians, non-Christians, they should know. Oh, these Christians really love one another. They're patient forbearing, with one another. And Paul says, for the Lord is near. Jesus is near to all believers, knows our conduct, and Jesus is patient and very long-suffering with us. Think about all the times, all the complaining and whining and the shortcomings that Jesus has to put up with us. And at any minute, he could take us out, couldn't he? But he's reasonable, he's gentle, he's forbearing, in the way he corrects us, works with us, remains with us, brings us to become more like him. So as he is patient and reasonable with us, we should be towards one another. You know, one of the reasons our apologetics conference has lasted over 10 years, and the reasons they've been so good, is because we had a great administrator, Winnie, and she's been with me for the last five or six conferences and she's one who really represents this character quality one of the things if you have the chance to work with me you'll understand i'm not a detailed person all right i see the big picture i keep us focused on the big picture but on the detail i am not a detailed person all right? and i get if i get too lost in the details i'm ready to shoot myself all right it's hard for me to think that way now, she understands that, and she takes care of all the details. Well, I've got the big picture focus of the conference moving forward. And usually, you know, she's come to the point where she can look at me and say, Pat, do you have this certain type of bed for the speaker who asked for it? And when I look at her with that blank stare, she goes, I got it. All right? Pat, do you have this certain type of car that the speaker ordered? He wanted this type of car because this, this and I will just kind of go, uh, and she will go, I got it. All right? She's come to that point where she kind of understands, almost reads my mind. And usually, a couple weeks before the conference, she'll always get a call from me several times throughout the week when the stress begins to mount, and especially the turnout, right? You know, Hawaii people, they don't register until like the week before the thing begins, right? And I'm I'm usually sitting there sweating, going and calling, going, Winnie, we only got fifty people. Winnie, you know, we're bringing in these great speakers. I don't want them to speak to an empty hall. And she's usually over there going, "Pat, we've had done this over ten years. How many times have we had an empty hall room? None. Has God always provided? Yes. Okay, relax. All right. And we usually have a great conference. All right." And when it's all over at our post-conference meeting, I usually get up and the people say, man, that was a great conference. I'm glad. They'll usually look at me and say, I'm glad nobody was stressed out about it. And I'll stand up and I'll say, yes. You know, ladies, you were over there stressed out about attendance and the details, but I said, trust the Lord, ladies, trust the Lord. (laughs) And all the ladies, especially Winnie, just rolling their eyes. Can we go through this, every year with this guy all right that's gentle reasonableness kind of spirit all right that we are to have with one another how do we develop that well that's a difficult thing isn't it one of the things that helps me often when i'm impatient with other people is to reflect on how patient jesus is towards me how much he puts up with from me all the complaining he has to listen to from me All the times when I feel I got the short end of the stick. All the times when I think he's let me down. He's got to listen to all that, all right? Yet he never loses his head kindly, gently, working, making me more like him. When we reflect on how patient he's been with us, when I reflect on that, it helps me to be more forbearing, more reasonable in dealing with others. Paul's third exhortation is the exhortation to prayer. Anxiety is one of the things that can rob us of that joy and peace that God desires for us to have. And when we meet times of stress and anxiety, Paul says what? Do not be anxious for anything. Do not be anxious. Do not be overly worried about what? Anything. That's quite an amazing statement. Now, anxious. Anxious. Okay. This Greek word doesn't mean to be concerned okay, or to live a carefree life. All right? if, if you've got someone in the hospital, I hope you're concerned. If things are going bad at work, you may lose your job. I, I hope you're concerned. All right? But this Greek word for anxious means to brood over, to speculate, to continually dwell upon. Often it, it's used for the cares of life which disturb someone's sleep from which refuge is sought in pleasures or love or in alcohol. And really it's a kind of worry which only death can bring to an end. This is a consuming kind of worry and anxiety. It has uh, the negative connotation of anxiety, harassing care, attempting to carry the burden of the future by oneself. It's an unreasonable, constant worry, especially about the things of, over which we have no control. When you face that kind of anxiety, Paul says, instead of being anxious and worrisome, what are we to do? Pray. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Instead of worry and anxiety, what do we do? Pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. I can tell you, when you see me stressed and worried, it's probably directly connected with my prayer life, all right? My prayer life is probably not in the best shape it needs to be. That's why I get consumed with worry. Prayer is when we invite the omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful God to enter into our life and do the things only He can do. When we're consumed with worry, often we're trying to do the things really only God can do. And we need to invite him into that situation. When you do, what's the result? Well, when you pray with thanksgiving, the result is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace, which is not affected, by the circumstances and situations of this world, a supernatural peace that only he can give guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now the word guard there, it's an interesting word. It refers to a Roman century guard guarding the city gates. All right? In the New Testament, it's usually it usually means to watch, to guard, to keep safe. So the picture that Paul is painting here is this. When you face anxiety of any kind, meet it with prayer, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Then God's peace, like a garrison of soldiers, will keep guard over your thoughts and feelings so that they will be safe against the assaults of worry and fear as any fortress. So as Roman guards would guard a fortress, so the peace of God guards the hearts and minds of believers when they meet anxiety with prayer, with an attitude of thanksgiving. One of my most popular shows is an interview with Ruby Ovitz. Now, we do a series on God's suffering and evil. And for several weeks, I give the philosophical, theological answer to the problem of evil. And then we do a whole series on How, as believers in Christ, in practical ways, do we confront and face and overcome the pain and suffering that comes upon in our lives? One of my most popular shows is with Ruby Ovitz, Dr. Ruby Ovitz, the former principal of Hawaii Baptist Academy. And in our show, if you listen to it, after a very difficult divorce, discovering that her husband had not been faithful... Divorce followed, but not long after that, she was diagnosed with a very aggressive type of ovarian cancer and given a slim chance to survive. And on that show, I asked her, how did you feel when hearing that diagnosis for the first time? And she said this. She said, I had surgery, and after I had surgery immediately, and after that was brought to my room, and Dr. Hirobayashi.'" held my hand and told me, Ruby, you have a very aggressive type of ovarian cancer. When she told me that, I was so quiet, I accepted the diagnosis. And then she says it was strange because, Pat, there was a warm feeling that came over my entire body from head to toe, and I knew it was God. And he said to me at that moment, Ruby, do not be afraid. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. And I was so quiet, and the doctor said, oh, you're one of my patients who do not even cry or get angry. And I said, doctor, I have peace. When I was told I may die for the first time in my life, I said, thank you, God. Thank you, for I have lived a full life, and I am ready. If it is your will that I be with you, then I have no regrets. I'm ready. I was not scared, Pat, she said, I had peace. And I asked God, if it's your will, would you give me more time to serve you? But if not, then I am ready to go. There was a woman who experienced that supernatural joy and peace, even receiving this terrible diagnosis. Someone that met anxiety with prayer and supplication with an attitude of thanksgiving. And when that happens, God says, the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How do we develop an attitude of thanksgiving? Well, here's one thing that has helped me. I heard it from a radio talk show. Can't remember who the guy's name was. I think it's Dennis Prager, but I can't quite remember. I want to give credit to where credit's due. I think it's Dennis Prager. But he said this, so I've learned to apply it in my life. Usually when we go to prayer, first thing we do is, God, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. Well, Paul says what? With an attitude of thanksgiving. Dennis Prager said, before you go to bed at night, say five things that you are thankful for. And that has been a great application for me. Before I go to prayer and I ask God for the things that I need in my life, I try to thank him for five things. That I can be thankful for you know that has helped change my attitude not only towards the Lord but my whole perspective on life without a thankful heart without thanking the Lord daily for the things that he has done we miss all the blessings that go on in our life and often we can develop an attitude of bitterness and anger saying God is not doing anything in my life God is not at work in my life I'm not being blessed He's forgotten me. But when you reflect on the day and before you pray, you thank God for five things, you often see the things you may have looked over, how God is working in your life to bring about his purpose that you may have just completely missed throughout the days and the weeks that have gone by. So Paul's third exhortation is an exhortation to prayer. Number four, it's the exhortation to ponder to dwell on on the right things. The older I get, the more I realize how powerful the mind is. The mind is an extremely powerful thing. And as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 10 and other passages, we need to guard the mind. We need to dwell on the things that are right and true. What consumes you often determines your outlook and attitude towards life. Paul says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about such things. There's a saying, whatever consumes your mind controls your life. If you're consumed about the guy that did you wrong, all right, or the wrong that was done to you, and maybe how you can get back, or your desire to get back, that's going to consume your life, all right, and your attitudes, and your outlook on life. What consumes your mind controls your life, and Paul says, therefore, you've got to guard your mind, you've got to dwell on these things. Number one, and we're going to go through this list pretty quick, whatever is true, the biblical definition means conformed to reality.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You will also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, as well as Pat's books. Be sure to share it with your family, friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.